Oof. Hello? <laughs> How are we? Boy, I, I feel like no one's going to want to read eventually. <laughs> We're losing people probably left and right at this point. So, okay, I'm going to pull out of this. I just feel like I'm going to, I feel like I'm in like a horse stall or something. Um, that's better. Hey, Sue, how are we doing? Week five, week five. Last week I gave you a scale of one to ten. This week we're going to do multiple choice. Circle the air. Okay, ready? Multiple choice. Terrific. Teetering between. Terrible. All of the above or none of the above. Just circle. Silently circle. <laughs> 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 There's no time. Um, seems like everyone put uh, something. Sorry, the T. Um, so honestly, are we doing okay? Doing well? Oh, am I in the? Gosh, blast! Yeah. So I appreciate that. So my wife had a nice kind word for me, so that the text was not across my forehead the entire time. <laughs> If you're wondering what's going on there. Okay, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin, and I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm just going to take like 20 minutes to like set up here, if that's okay. <sighs> now I'm like just totally paranoid. Okay. Anyway, RF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are and whoever you are. Uh, we mean that, and we mean that in the sense that we don't already have to represent one kind of person. We want to represent, represent any scene on campus, any personal background, um, and that means no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity, we hope you feel welcomed. I mean, you might call yourself a believer, you might call yourself a spiritual skeptic, you might call yourself convinced or unconvinced, you might call yourself none of the above or somewhere in between the above, and I'm, we're just really happy you're here. And we, uh, we hope to get to know you. We hope you become part of the community. Um, if this is your first time especially, thanks so much for taking the time and the risk, especially this time of year, which is like not midterms, it's like quarter terms. I don't understand how this happens, uh, but it's busy. So anyway, large group, here's what we're up to. We're looking at the books of Judges and Ruth. Come around fall break, we're gonna transition to Ruth, but we're kind of finishing up Judges and that's why we're doing a lot of material. And I'm calling this series Love in an R-Rated World. Love in an R-Rated World. And what I mean by that is the books of Judges and Ruth are definitely TV mature or R-Rated. Just so far this semester, we've read about a knife to the belly fat that ended in a post-mortem poop. We have read about a tent peg uh, pounded through a would-be seducer's skull. We have read about, and then just today, if you listen to the passage at all, you'll notice that there was this army of locust-like moochers, a damp then dry lambskin rug, men drinking like dogs, and breaking case of wartime mason jar pottery with 300 ancient sparklers. So there's some weird stuff going on here. Um, There's some chaos, there's some blood, there's some gore, there's some violence, there's some sex, and really in this passage, really weirdness. And we're going to talk a lot about the weirdness. But you might be asking yourself, why is this kind of stuff in the books of Judges and Ruth? In particular, why is it in the Bible? That's a great question. I think they're there because, like it or not, the Bible reflects the real world. And we've said this every week, but that world, especially after the tender age of about eight, 
becomes obviously uh, has a dark side, has a gritty dark side, uh, and as well as a light side. And our personal stories, world history, headline news are full of that dark and gritty side of things, the bloody and the strange and the horrific. Um, but the Bible, and specifically Judges and Ruth, don't leave us there. They also offer this, us this luminous and hopeful solution for our very real world, God's love. God's love that finds its focus in and through Jesus. That's what we're looking at in particular. And from Judges and Ruth, we're going to see that Jesus' love can be gory, it can be messy, it can be awkward, because it's doing business with it's mending a world that is gory and messy and awkward and a people that are gory and messy and awkward. And so that's really the premise of what we're up to. Um, so I'd like to take some time to pray uh, once more for the time that we have together, uh, especially for me as this sermon has worked me over already. So uh, let's pray. Father, um, I'm thankful for this group of students that actually wants to hear from you. And I pray that you, in many ways, help me get out of the way. Um, I pray that you would work on us as we think about these passages. Um, there's a lot here. There's a lot of confusing stuff here. And I pray that you would help me not to be confusing. Um, I pray that you would help me to clarify what's going on here um, with whatever community of people and help that I've been able to gather. Um, I pray that you would be clear, that you would be um, poignant, that you would not leave us the same as how we entered this room. Uh, we pray, Jesus, that you'd be high and lifted up and that you'd be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts and that you would change those hearts. Wherever we are with you, wherever we are with the idea of change, I pray that you'd meet us there and that you'd sit with us and that you'd move us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As promised. Ready? It was about my freshman year of college, about this time. Uh, I became interested in a girl in fourth little. Uh, her name was Emily. And I met her after asking a friend and a hallmate, her friend and her hallmate, to a soccer party. This is a party foul. But we instantly connected, this Emily and I, not the other girl. Uh, here's, here's a couple stats. She was from a city that was about an hour away from where my grand grandmother lived. Can you feel the chemistry? It's <laughs> <laughs> hot to hear. Um, her eyes sparkled. She had a huge, wonderful smile. And she had all these layers, layers upon layers of interest. Like, she was interested in applied math. I'm still really not sure what that is. Um, she was interested in modern dance, again. Um, she had these layers of accomplishment, like how she would leave some weekends to go and compete in beauty pageants, real live beauty pageants. Who does that? Uh, my 18-year-old my self thought that was really cool and awesome. So, and most connecting of all between me and Emily was I was pretty sure she was into me. And so that helped a lot. And so we would flirt back and forth and back and forth what felt like months. And I even, uh, even to the point where we were swing dancing on the court and I dropped her and we laughed about it, which I felt like was a good sign. What a connection. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, it was December. <laughs> and I went home for the break to Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. And she went home to her family an hour from my grandmother. <laughs> And with the finals flurry, the green books, and you know the scheduling and self-scheduling and whatnot, the take-homes, 
everything we were, our relational status was kind of left hanging in the air. You know what I mean? Like, what were we? Um, and then, kind of in the midst of that uncertainty, I made the fatal mistake of watching an artsy Terrence Malick movie late one night. <laughs> Do you guys know who Terrence Malick is? It's this movie, The Thin Red Line. Okay, my high school friend had rented it. And like all of Terrence Malick's movies, he's most recently done, he writes and directs really artsy movies, really good movies, I think. The Tree of Life is another one. Anyway, The Thin Red Line was like this slow-moving, moody, cinematic piece. It was like emotionally sensitive. Uh, it looked at sort of the Pacific Theater in World War II. But more than that, it was like a meditation on the frailty of relationships and love. And the whole time I was watching this, I couldn't help but think about Emily and her connection. Um, and so I did the unthinkable. I did what I still actually get extremely nauseous thinking about <laughs> to this day. I stayed up late that night, high on the dramatic fumes of that movie, and I wrote Emily an unforgettable email. <laughs> People are covering their face already. Um, I poured out my young heart to her, starting general about ideas like love and then moving to specifics like my highly, high, high, high liking slash near love for her and how she was really special and how I thought we should date, you know, not go out on dates, date, but like be an item date, be a status, be exclusive. <laughs> and I guess I just really wanted certainty to know where we stood and if I'm honest, uh, I used my most flattering, flowery email prose to get something out of Emily I thought I needed, a kind of affirmation, a strength, a sort of glory. But, but day after day, the whole rest of the winter break, I checked my outlook. <laughs> I even hit refresh multiple times a day. But Emily never responded to my email. <laughs> Shocking, I know. I was crushed, I was ashamed, and I was ashamed most of all by how quickly my vulnerability had turned into an embarrassing weakness. And I hated that feeling of weakness, and somewhere deep inside myself at an unconscious level, I made a vow. I would never get fooled like that again. I would never feel like that again. And that vow changed the way that I dated for the better part of three years at Davidson College. <laughs> I think almost all of us uh, can think of a moment where you felt weak. Like a moment where you despised your vulnerability and it probably had to do with dating or liking someone. Or it could have had to do with just something asking someone more than once to hang out. Or it could have been that you asked someone to be friends with you forever and they didn't reply. Or there was best friends forever and you didn't know which one it was. Um, at Davidson, inside of me, there's this desire to put it all out there, right? For good reasons and for bad reasons. But there's this fear that we'll only get silence or get dropped or feel ashamed in return. And so lots of people here never actually put themselves out there really. Lots of people in the world never really put themselves out there really, right? We don't have to have close friends. We, some people won't go there about dating. Others have this push-pull with intimacy. Some nights they hang out in late lounges talking late at night and telling secrets. Or they ask people to coffee, quote unquote, or to study together, quote unquote. And we're not ever sure it's a date. 
It's a non-date date. It's a date that's not a date. We don't know what it is. Or we want to, to be known as deeply and as quickly as possible to, to feel and to be felt immediately. Or maybe just to declare, I am his and she is mine. We're official, we're exclusive, we're practically married. <laughs> but we do all of this uh, at Davidson, we do all this dating and this friendship, this particular all or nothing way, because at some level we despise our own weakness and friendship and relationships and dating bring that out in a special way. We hate how it feels to be weak. So in Judges chapter six, six through eight, Gideon is not dating anybody. <laughs> But he is constantly fidgeting with the fact that he's weak. Gideon wants to be strong. He wants to be right. But he's not. He's weak and he's afraid and he's uncertain. And really Judges 6 through 8 offers this extended meditation, a front row seat to watch the way that Gideon both rejects and embraces his weakness. And the way that God never despises and always uses weakness. In fact, God rescues his people through our weakness. Weakness is precious to him. So in Judges chapter 6 through 8, and Gideon, they force us to consider these two questions. And these are the questions that are the takeaway questions on your handout. What does it look like to embrace our own weakness? What does it look like to welcome our own weakness into our lives? And the second question is, how is God's power made perfect in your weakness? How is God's power made perfect in that vulnerability that you guard with your life, that I guard with my life? These two questions are going to help guide the discussion tonight of Judges chapter 6 through 7. And even as we look at how God and Gideon relate to weakness in these three specific ways, and again, this is on your handout, First, verses six, chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, we're going to look at what weakness is. We're going to look at what weakness looks like. Second, chapter 6, verses 36 through 40, we're going to look at how we can fearfully misuse our weakness. How can we fearfully misuse our weakness? And third and finally, we're going to look at chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 and 19 through 22, and we're going to look at how God can generously use our weakness. How does God generously use our weakness? Again, it's on your outline. uh, But as usual, we're going to begin where the passage begins, and we're going to look at Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. I know we don't have all of it. I'm aware of that. And we're going to look at what weakness is. So chapter 6 gives us this, like, intimate portrait, if you look there. It's extended a picture of what weakness looks like. Judges gives us a portrait of weakness that begins with the people of Israel in the first six verses. Yes, it's the same basic structure we see every single week what the, in every other judge's story, what's called the cycle. Um, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. But those are only verses 1 and 6. If you'll notice for the first time, we have a lot of extensive time and detail dedicated through verses 2 and 5. Okay. Here we learn that the oppression that the Israelites were under was the worst, even though it was one of the shortest periods. The Israelites were forced to hide out in caves to protect their only food for the year. 
from being stolen and their lives, they had to protect their lives from being taken by the Midianites and the Malachites. The Midianites and the Malachites were not after political oppression. They were nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples. So they didn't set up forts, they didn't set up garrisons, they didn't do station armies. All they did, they had a reign of terror that was economic opportunism. They would come in right before, during every season's harvest, and they would come like bullies for lunch money, hitting, hitting the Israelites up in a mad and yes, camel-fueled headlong attack. The Midianites would swiftly steal or destroy all of Israel's crops, all of Israel's livestock for the entire season. Can you imagine that? Then these marauding moochers would leave Israel to suck on burnt sheaves of wheat or to fight amongst themselves for a skin and bone sheep. That was what was left. And this is a devastating picture of what weakness can look like on a collective scale. Defeated, hiding, hungry, turned in on themselves, well, well beyond self-sufficiency, right? And this yearly realization led the Israelites to a self-honesty and desire to turn to someone higher and more powerful than themselves. So they cry out to the Lord, okay? And here's my question. What about for us? When's the last time that you and I got really honest? Maybe even just an hour ago. This week has just buckled us. But did we ask God for help? Did we say something simple like, Lord, have mercy, the oldest, one of the oldest prayers in the entire church? Kyrie eleison. God, help me to even pray. I don't even have to pray for. Or maybe help my unbelief, no matter where we are. Look, it doesn't have to be long or eloquent. I mean, most cries for help aren't. But did we, in our weakness, and our self-awareness, do we cry out for help? But the comfort that kind of accompanies that challenge right there begins in verse 11. Israel cries out for help, and God sends his messenger, literally the angel of the Lord, his ambassador, his presence as a messenger. The angel of the Lord pursues and he engages and he calls Gideon. Gideon, God's mighty man of valor. In order to meet Israel in the dark and rescue them from what they can't get out of themselves. Right? But before we confuse Gideon and Jesus together, you see that whole incarnational thing. God's choice of a rescuer is again a head scratcher. You have to think about this. It's like the weirdest choice, the most bizarre choice. God finds his mighty man of valor, end air quotes, okay? Mighty man of valor, hiding scared in a hole. That's where they come upon each other, okay? Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. It's harvest time, so perhaps he is on edge, thinking he's going to hear the jingle of gold jewelry, see the shadow of a camel, mounted rider peer over him, feel the cold bronze of a sword against the back of his neck any minute. And so he is fretful. And he is certainly not busily and boldly planning or leading a revolution. And he's the exact opposite. He's eking out a living in a wine press, not a threshing floor. He's in private doing his thing, taking care of himself. And then when the angel of the Lord addresses Gideon as a mighty man of valor and assures him the Lord is with him, Gideon doesn't respond with faith. He responds with just sheer doubt, right? Here's my authorized, revised, standard paraphrase of verse 13. Ready? Oh, yeah. 
The Lord, you say, the Lord God, where has he been for like the last seven years? How about some Egyptian style miracles right here, right now? I will take a mess of airborne frogs at this point. Give me something. Right, that Lord of our fathers. You know the one where we slip through his almighty fingers? That's the guy that you're telling me about? He's with me? And to this cynical question fest, hear how kind and personal God is. This is what he says to his angel. And again, a paraphrase. You are the salvation I am sending. You are the mighty warrior. You will do the wonderful deeds that Moses did in Egypt. You are my new Moses. And in verse 15, Gideon changes his tone. He goes from addressing the angel's sir to addressing the angel's Lord, from doubting God's character to doubting God's choice. He says, no longer where were you, God? It's now, why me, God? And Gideon doubts God's choice by pointing the finger at himself and saying, what a horrific choice, God. (laughs) Please, God, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Here's uh, the more modern way a friend of mine puts it. Um, How can I save Israel? I didn't graduate from an Ivy League university. I don't have any advanced degrees. I fell out of ITT tech. I don't have a GED. I don't know Carol Quillen or Ken Mankhaus or Bob McCullough. All I know is Dennis, who works at the 7-Eleven. And if no manager's looking, he can score you a super big gulp. That's all I've got. Those are my connections. That's my influence. That's my pedigree. You see, Gideon is holding up his ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a resume, and he's saying it sucks. It is a terrible resume. He was, he doesn't, notice he doesn't lift off the clubs he runs, or his GPA, or his references, or where he went to school. He gives up, he lists his genealogy. So he's saying, I am the weakest member of the weakest family and one of the weakest tribes in all of Israel. AKA, I have no authority. When I call out, no one's going to listen. No one's going to come running. They're going to laugh me back into the wine press. To all this, the Lord God responds by promising his greatest gift, the Lord's presence. But... Gideon, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Commenting on this verse, Dale Davis explains the so what. God has nothing else or more to offer you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential thing. Nothing about the when, nothing about the how, nothing about the where, nothing about the why, only the who. And that's enough. So I have this like friend and spiritual director named Phil. And Phil, like Gideon, took great pains to despise his weakness. He used it to disqualify himself, and he used it to overwork. In fact, out of a fear for appearing weak, he worked so hard that he put himself in a state of spiritual and emotional exhaustion and ended up for two weeks in a hospital psychiatric ward. Phil um, is just released, and he's invited to his family, his fiance's family's house for dinner. And he's expecting to kind of like reconnect a quiet evening. And over dessert, his future mother-in-law asks the question that skewers him. Phil, are you emotionally equipped for marriage? Or are you, as we suspect, too weak? 
true story. Phil, are you emotionally equipped for marriage or are you, as we suspect, too weak? The next day, his fiance calls. She breaks off the engagement. Her only reason is that she can't marry a weak man. As Phil has processed this and how this life spun out from this devastating three-week period of time, he realized that a lot of his view of himself had to do with his view of God. In the words of theologian A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so Phil began to trace his people-pleasing, his addiction to productivity, back to his view of God. The God that Phil followed oftentimes was just a grouchy, and his favorite hobby was being angry at Phil. He was a God whose acceptance he had to earn by outward acts of behavior and rule-keeping. A God who was pleased by Phil the more Phil felt terrible and miserable. But Phil also realized that this angry, demanding God was actually extremely small. He was quite small. God's mood depended on Phil's actions. God needed Phil's help to do good. God was in need of Phil's energy, of Phil's rescue, rather than Phil needing God's rescue. And so, of course, Phil's weakness became the main thing, the throbbing thing in his life. His inability, his doubt, his insignificance, his fear became a bigger deal than God's strength. Became a bigger deal than God's ability, his faithfulness, his significance, his courageousness. But all that changed by Phil's effort to behold God as he is revealed in Jesus. And Phil's word, only a clear image of the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ will free us from believing that it's up to us and how well we perform. Listen to that again. Only a clear image of the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ will free us from believing that it's up to us and how well we perform. What he's saying is you're going to fixate on your strength and your weakness. You're going to fixate on working off your weakness of of fondling and fingering and fiddling with your weakness. Afraid of what other people think of us, afraid of what other people will do to us. Unless you experience the true presence of Jesus, unless you start to behold him as he truly is. And it frees us not to use weakness as an excuse to overwork in order to get strength, in order to get acceptance and affirmation. To trust Jesus as he is and as he loves us as we are changes everything. It changed Phil's life. Does that make sense? Okay. But for much of his life, Gideon's God felt so small and his Gideon's weakness is often the main thing. Okay. We see that that Gideon fretfully worked through this and his second thoughts about God's plan. You see that in chapter 6, verses 17 through 24. Then you see his third thoughts, his thoughts about his second thoughts. In chapter 6, verses 36 through 40. And finally, fourth thoughts in Judges chapter 7, verses 9 through 15. So he's doubting his doubts, he's doubting his doubts, he's doubting his doubting his doubting his doubts. Okay? That's kind of what's going on. 
In particular, I want to look at Gideon's second round of second guessing God's plan to use him, which is verses 36 through 30, okay? Uh, and I want to say these are symptomatic of how we fearfully misuse our own weakness. Second point, and it'll be a brief one, okay? So Gideon with the fleece shows us how we can actually spiral inward on ourselves and obsess over our weakness until we feel incapable, until we don't trust that God can and will use our very lives to do the small, meaningful acts of love or even to rescue the world. We can get so kind of in our own heads and minds. And in verses 36 through 40, Gideon constructs this elaborate test to know that God intends to use him, that know that God intends to use him as he is, intends to save by Gideon's weak hand. And so we have this like incredible system of tests. God must only allow dew to accumulate on the lambskin rug and not on the surrounding threshing floor. And God complies in verse 38. And Gideon goes, uh, 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 not so fast, God. He's still not satisfied that God can manage to use his weakness. And so Gideon conducts the reverse test. He goes, okay, here we go. The lambskin rug's got to be dry and the floor around it's got to be wet. And against all rules of evaporation, condensation, absorbency, God again complies in verse 40. The lambskin rug is dry and the floor is wet. Sadly, many Christians use Gideon's skeptical experiments as a way to make decisions in our lives. Well-meaning people take what the Bible describes and make it a prescription. Because decision-making is this place that we, several of us really, really feel um, self-contempt and fear. It's so often where several of us feel at our weakest is when we have to make a decision. And so, for instance, many well-meaning people think that God uses signs to tell us what to do. And so we ask God, uh, this is a super important question coming up, where should I go for spring break? And then we stand at Rich Circle and we count license plates, right? If more cars with North Carolina plates drive by in the next 15 minutes than say New York or Florida or South Carolina, then God is telling me to stay put, stay in Charlotte, stay in Davidson for spring break. Or if I see a car with a Florida license plate right after I pray that prayer and I open my scrunched up eyes, okay, then I know where I'm going for spring break. Panama City Beach, here I come. (laughs) But the Bible actually calls this practice divination, okay? And divination uh, not only puts the Lord to the test, kind of a bad thing, it also is condemned as not honoring God and his character. And this is because fleece tests like looking for signs, assume that God is a peewee league jerk, okay? If God loves us, if we're his precious children in whom he delights and for whom God moves all of the heavens and all of the earth to give us bread, not a stone, and fish and not a snake, why would God hide the decision, the answer that we need? Why would it require all of this? He would either have to be a jerk or we'd have to be very puny and very needy. He would require our elaborate, non-biblical decision-making experiments to tell us what to do. But I have more on that. You can look into a Proverbs sermon last semester. Happy to talk about that more. But even as we are directed towards decision-making and we're listening to advice and we're weighing our options and we're praying, I want you to notice how patiently kind God is with Gideon and with us, even in our weakness. Look, 
Gideon makes God perform like a circus poodle. Does anyone else see that? And God's not easily embarrassed. God does not make us look stupid, does not make us look weak, does not make us look foolish. Instead, he makes himself look weak and makes himself look foolish. What, I mean, maybe God thinks to himself, what's wetting and drying a sheep's wool compared to getting hung up to dry, naked and wet with spittle on a cross? Jesus loves us. And he loves us in our weakness. And he loves our weakness far more than we even love ourselves. And really, Judges chapter 7, it proves that very point in spades. After a few tense nights on the threshing floor with the lambskin rug, Gideon finally is ready to go and attack the Midianites, to be God's instrument, to deliver Israel from oppression. So in chapter 7, we look and see that Gideon's story shows us how God can generously use our weakness. How God can generally use our weakness, which is point three. Gideon has set up a strategic camp. He's gathered 32,000 men against all possible expectations. He's put them in a narrow pass in the eastern part of the Valley of Jezreel. And he has further seized the Midianites' water supply, the Spring of Herod. So he's doing some military good maneuvers. Um... And although we later learn in chapter 8 that the Midianites had 135,000 people, remember Midian has 32,000 at this point, um, those odds maybe look like it could be possible to victory until God asks for Midian to get rid of 31,700 troops. Okay? And many commentators are like really, really quick to point out that the 300 remaining Israelites are like the best of the leftovers. They're like, oh, they're reheatable. They aren't fearful or trembling. Verse three, they're alert. They lay on their stomachs and they cup water like dogs on their bellies, putting their hands to their mouth. I'm not sure how that's like dogs, maybe just their bellies. Verses four through seven. But look, the point stands. These are impossible odds. Do you get that? God is demanding, he's making Israel's odds go from six to one, six minutes to every one Israelite. Then it's going to 13 to one. And now it's going to 450 to 1. 450 Midianites per one Israelite. And verse 2 tells us the point of reducing Israel's army size to 300. God wants us to realize that we, by ourselves, are utterly hopeless to do what God is asking of us. We're utterly hopeless to do what God's asking of us by ourselves. God wants us to expose, to dig into our weakness, our absolute inadequacy, in order to remind us that God is huge, that he alone can do what's impossible for us. That our weakness is true, but it's not the end of the story. God's grace, his unmerited favor is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And so we can actually offer God what we've got, which is our weakness. And we are ready to do God's work when we realize that we can't do God's work. You get that? That's what this, this is teaching us. We are ready to do God's work when we realize we can't do it. We are too weak. It's impossible for a 300-person army to defeat a 135,000-person army. It's as impossible as changing someone's behavior with good advice. That's 135,000 to one odds is what it looks like to confess our self-preoccupation. Or to forgive someone's, someone else's self-preoccupation. 
It's 135,000 times unlikely that we would know what to say or how to serve someone who's depressed, someone who's anxious, someone who's raging. God is trying to teach us and teach Gideon that we are never ready for ministry. We are never ready or qualified to love other people, but that our weakness isn't the point. God's strength, God's love, God's rescue is the point. And God wants to do something with us, not for us. He wants to do something with us, not instead of us. He wants to use us in our weakness, in our mixed strength. And that's what he does in the end of this chapter, right? Briefly. He takes this incredibly weak-looking army with ram horn kazoos and ceramic beach buckets and a 300-pack of reading kerosene Bic lighters. And what does he do? He makes a victory out of that. And Gideon and the 300 do nothing but keep the perimeter. They just stand there. And do you realize that God does the rest? And you have to realize that this is exactly how Jesus works. He uses weakness to make victory. He's a baby who's too poor to get a proper sacrifice. A young man who's too ordinary to do anything but a carpenter. He's a teacher who's too disrespected to draw a crowd of anyone that you wouldn't hug and then have to shower with a shower after you hug them. But Jesus' weakest moment is definitely on the cross. Wrongly convicted, nailed up like a thief, mocked, naked. He didn't even last three hours before he passed away, mumbling forgiveness. And we weren't born yet. And Jesus' friends just stood on the perimeter of the crucifixion. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so here's the question. What will Jesus do with your weakness? What will he do with my weakness? Will we give Jesus what we've got to offer, which is our weakness? Will we stop hating our weakness? Will we let him use our weakness with other people? Will we stop fearing our weakness? And will we start trusting Jesus' weakness that makes us strong? that gives us improbable victory, that does the impossible. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. I know there's a lot to take in here, and I pray that you would do the work, that you would need this into our hearts. Some of us desperately need to hear this, that we're not the sum of our mistakes, but that you use our mistakes. It's baffling. And I pray that you would help us to trust that stumbling, bumbling, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. We thank you that you are a savior who came to make that true. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.